G'day film fans, I'm Dave. I'm I'm Jeff. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a different Jeff. A different Jeff. And I'm John. And welcome back to The Love of Cinema, a pod in which we'll challenge one another to discuss movies, both new and old, with a strictly positive critical eye. That's right. And to keep us honest, we've made this a drinking game. A drinking so, game. Yeah. A game. That's what I said. And uh, yeah, so if we uh, say anything negative about a film, because quite frankly, we're sick of people doing that. You will hear this sound, and that means that person has to drink. So yeah, pour yourselves a glass, and we're gonna we're gonna take a little bit of a trip back here for something that uh, we probably should have seen by now. Some of us. Definitely, definitely. We will get to that in just a moment. Real fast, I just want to call out our shout-outs to our, our, our sponsors. Yes. Uh, as always, we have the beer sponsor, Carlos Barozzo. You can find them on Instagram. That's Barozzo Bar 2019 if you want to give them a follow. That's C-B-A-R-R-O-Z-O-B-A-R-2019. And if you're digging the music, you can go to soundcloud.com forward slash docine dash artist, and you can download all the music available for free by the artist docine. And I uh, want to welcome back our other Jeff, he has been with <laughs> us before. This is Jeff Ronan of the And Almost Starring podcast. He has been with us. Perhaps you will recall the uh, Batman Forever episode yes. we did at some point over the pandemic, which was just a fucking blast. So thank you so much, man. Why don't you just remind everybody about your show, who you guys are, if you want to just give yourselves a little shout out, and hopefully some listeners will get thrown your way as well, because this yeah, show is yeah. great. If you oh, are a movie thanks. fan, you're going to want to follow mm. this show. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. That uh, that intro. Yes, I'm different, Jeff. I'm Jeff Ronan here with you today as your <laughs> alternate host. Uh, yeah. So, and almost starring is uh, uh, now it was a weekly show. We're currently going bi-weekly for a little while, uh, all for good reasons, for work-related reasons. But uh, each nice. episode, we take a, a film. We've done everything so far from Godfather, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, Silence of the Lambs, very eclectic mix. And uh, we'll break down all the actors who were almost cast. Uh, my wife, Amy Jo Jackson, who's also been on your guys' show. On uh, You might have heard her on Singing in the Rain. Yeah, special shout out for Amy Jo. She's the only person, not only was she the first woman we had on the show, she's the first person to do this show with hard liquor. <laughs> yeah yeah oh, that was awesome. I, I would have we're recording a little earlier it's 3 45 i considered just breaking out some jameson and i was like ah, i got things i gotta accomplish later today uh but so she does no research for our episode so we will she will hear along with so listeners she'll get like all of these alternate casting options like in the moment we do fantasy casting as well it's very silly it's very fun uh and uh yeah come check us out you can uh we're on instagram and facebook at and almost starring, and you can hear us probably wherever you're listening to this episode right now. Hell yeah. Well, yeah. welcome back, man. We're so excited mm. to have you back. This is and, fun. And, and don't worry about forgetting your lines in the intro. Other Jeff fucks it up all the time. <laughs> he did he all forget his time. name? <laughs> you, you point at him as well. Like, this is where you introduce yourself. <laughs> no, no we just let him hang. We like we... you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we are so excited. Uh, this is the midweek episode. Uh, anyone who's been following us recently knows that we're kind of trying to split up uh, some basically three different segments we're floating between right now. We're trying to cover some good new movies, which we are going to have some exciting ones to do next week that we'll tell oh, yeah. you about at the end of the episode. Uh, sometimes we are still doing our classic redemption, or was it really that bad, where we pick a uh, infamously, perhaps notoriously, perhaps deservingly so bad movie from the uh, cinematic universe Sometimes and we three. talk yeah we try to talk about whether or not it deserved it if you checked out uh monday or tuesday's episode can't remember this week we did superman 4 and i think we all landed on 
Yes, unfortunately, it was really that bad. Sorry, and Superman like, if, franchise. If that's a, just in case it's a spoiler alert for anyone. Just like, in case. Yeah. I still recommend listening because uh, it was hilarious. And that movie is a funny watch if you enjoy watching fun, bad movies. Uh, and this segment that we're going to be doing today in the midweek episode is our Should Have Seen It By Now. So anyone who uh, doesn't follow us on the socials at the love of cinema uh, pod for basically everything Except for Twitter, we're just at the love of cinema there. If you want to go on, follow us, give us some love, you can submit through messages or any way you can contact us. Mm. You can submit some films that you either think are really terrible, that you want us to do and wasn't really that bad, or this segment, a movie that you have shamefully never seen before, but feel that you should have seen it by now. And I am so excited today because both of these co-hosts of mine today, both Jeff Ronan from An Almost Starring Podcast and... Dave Green from the Love of Cinema Pod. Those are two, just let me clarify that. Those are two movie podcast hosts who have never seen today's movie, Stanley that's, that's Kubrick's 1964. Dr. Strangelove. It's uh, not at all. You guys, I'm so, I'm so excited. You know what? I'll, I'll, that's, I'll buzz myself for that one. That's, that's, that's me buzzing myself. I'm going to take a quick drink. No, I was going to let you have that shot. That's bad. The title of the movie, the entire title, because it's so much fun, it's so ridiculous. If you don't understand that this is a comedy, hopefully you will after reading the title, Dr. Strangelove, or colon, How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Uh, most people just know this as Dr. Strangelove. The uh, little IMDb blurb for the plot is an insane general triggers a path to nuclear holocaust that a war room full of politicians and generals frantically tries to stop. So this is Stanley Kubrick's uh, film from 1964. It came right between Lolita, which was 1962, and 2001 A Space Odyssey in 1968. Uh, Lolita was right after Spartacus as well. So basically anyone who's a Kubrick fan, just to give you some kind of context for where he was when he made this... um, he was hired to produce or hired produ- to produce and direct uh, Spartacus and uh, Paths, of, Paths of Glory before that. The Killing was one of his own. Killer's Kiss was one of his own. Fear and Desire. So he had a few independent things. Then kind of classically got uh, Kirk Douglas noticed him. So hired him for Paths of Glory, hired him for Spartacus. Then him and his producing partner, who I will look up at some point in this episode. I cannot remember. Him and Stanley Kubrick's producing partner. Um broke off and did Lolita. That was their first one that they wanted to tackle, which was a very controversial <laughs> telling of yeah. Anyway, yeah, what a way to it's start. Like, oh, hey, we're going to start on our own. How, how should we ease in? Oh, Lolita? <laughs> oh, Lolita. Yeah. Let's just lean into an it. unadaptable book. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if anyone who doesn't know that story, uh, I'm not going to... I'm not going to try to summarize it on this little podcast right now, but uh, a very bold first film. Let's put it that way. A very bold first film. And he follows it up with Dr. Strangelove, which... As we will begin to talk about, I'm going to hear the thoughts from these guys. Also, is very bold in its own ways. 1964, right in the middle of the Cold War era. Our parents were learning how to hide under desks in case nuclear bombs went off, and he made a comedy cover, about people. that subject matter. <laughs> so, first things first, as we do when we, when we do this segment, let me ask each of you. Jeff, will let you go first. We'll throw you in the hot seat for a second. Is there a reason why you why you have never seen this yet? Are you a Kubrick fan? Do you just not, not a, yeah? Tell me, tell me how you yeah, how you got yeah. to a so point I, at this I, age where you haven't I, seen it. 
I kind of had just a lot of Kubrick blind spots. I only saw 2001 for the first time a few years ago, which I waited. They did, um, uh, uh, I don't know if it was a remaster or whatnot, but it was in IMAX theaters right. a few years ago. So I was like, well, that seems like the perfect time to find it. I've got, like, I could have done like Lawrence of Arabia for, you should have seen it by now. Cause that's one that I own. But once again, I'm like, I can't watch this on my TV. This needs to be seen on a giant <laughs> oh, screen. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I felt about 2001, which I had a great time at. But nice. I, I've always had, like, I only saw Lolita for the first time a few years ago really only because like i should should i say this question mark but like when yeah. i was younger really the main ones that i'd seen of kubrick were the shining i'd seen a clockwork orange and full metal jacket and i just like, yeah. saw a lot of blind spots never saw i'd never seen dr strangelove never saw barry linden never saw spartacus um i kind of want to go and see the killing now because that seems so different because it's also mm-hmm. sterling hayden who plays a uh, ripper in this film um but i had tried to watch this movie twice like one i think once in high school and once in college which is when i was really like starting i was trying to go and see as many classic films as i could in that time that's when i saw godfather for for the first time and probably when i saw those other kubricks when i saw clockwork orange and full metal jacket and i remember always getting like a half hour in to dr strange love and just i couldn't i couldn't get into it and this time I, I was I kind of abandoned going into it as a comedy because that it, it also like it, it takes a while before the comedy really comes out. Like if you don't know you're seeing a comedy, you've got a good half hour, a third of the film really for you have like what I would constitute any kind of hard joke or even within yeah. the context of this is a satire. And of course, you do open your film. You've got these uh, this lovingly photographed and scored scene of these planes refueling as if they're fucking midair yes. uh, which is pretty delightful but like I, I, that might have po- that it's not my easily head missed either you, you like yeah. it's like yep that's what's happening there's no room <laughs> yeah. for misinterpretation here exactly right um so i enjoyed it this time but i kind of had to go into it taking off like it taking off the veneer of comedy to, to not worry if I don't find it funny. Cause there were parts that I found funny, but it's also so much of it that I just find stressful of how much is like <laughs> yeah. no, these, idiots, uh, these idiots, these idiots are going to kill us all. Uh, <laughs> so I think I, at high school, I just wasn't able to get in. I just wasn't able to get into it. I wanted to so badly and I just did not care. I couldn't no, that's cool, find man. my no, way I totally in. Feel you. I, um, I think we're going to end up talking about that. Uh, just yeah. his tone and stuff in general. And like, yeah, it's almost a shame that we have to, think of it in such an absolute way with being labeled a comedy um thanks dude yeah we're, i definitely want to hear how you felt about it this time dave just real real fast man tell us uh tell us why you've never seen this until now is I there just, is there I a reason fucking hate kubrick <laughs> fucking hates just... kubrick and <laughs> yeah, you're gonna fucking hate a person in general you gotta beep that <laughs> all right fine oh, come I'm on done. I'm just going to buzz you over and over and over again for that. No, I, I mean, uh, I've, I, I like 2001. I like The Shining. Um, the, the other thing I saw uh, apart from that was Full Metal Jacket. I'm not really into war films as such. It just doesn't do it for me at all. And then Eyes Wide Shut, which was meh. Really? And so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I just never went back. And, yeah. and looked at some of the earlier stuff, and until now, okay. Where well, we, only, we for, because of this show, we have done Paths of Glory, and now we've done Doctor Strange stuff. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I basically set it up with the uh, the general IMDb blur. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so this is uh, 
takes place basically in a few different settings. It's basically three different stories being told. One is a military base, an Air Force base in America. One is on a B-52 bomber with the bombing team because the given scenario, there's a, a prescript uh, that comes up and tells you in writing that at this point in history, and I, I'm not even sure how true this is. I think it might be true because we definitely have... Um, we have submarines that do this all the time right now. There are basically, there were B-52s flying around it all the time in uh, around enemy airspace, not in enemy airspace, but around it, ready to get the go-ahead to start dropping fucking bombs everywhere. Nuclear warheads, right? So uh, we have the Air Force Base on the ground. We have the setting on the B-52 pl uh, plane itself. And then we have a bunch of politicians, including the president of the United States and all the top generals in the, quote, the war room. I think we now call it the situation room, but... Uh, mm. I, I think I like Stanley Kubrick's design better than uh, the way the West Wing did it. I'm just, just going to put that out there. <laughs> so you basically have these three different settings. Uh, one actor lives in all of them, and I'm sure we'll get to his amazing performance at some point. But uh, yeah, so let's just let's just go for it. Jeff, you were kind of starting to touch on it already. Did it help that you went into it without the without that comedy thing? Did it was it able to turn into something else for you or like just yeah just let's just start man? What do you think? Yeah yeah this well I gotta say this might be one of the strangest quartet of lead perf of perf main performers that I can recall seeing in a film between Peter Sellers, uh, uh, George C. Scott, Slim Pickens, and mm -hmm. Sterling Sterling Hayden. Right? That's that's I'm not wait is it Sterling yeah. Hayden as a Ripper? Yeah, because he yeah. is he played Ripper is playing it so straight. Like he is terrifying in that whole like monologue with he's got the cigar and they're shooting him like from the ground where he's talking about like, oh, this guy's crazy. This guy has just decided I'm going to launch an attack now because the Ruskies are dropping fluoride in our water. Then Slim Pickens, <laughs> yeah. which I'm not sure how I feel about Slim Pickens in this film, knowing that, which, okay, so from what I do know that uh, they wanted Peter Sellers for four roles and he's they have him in three. So you've got this great trio of comedic performances, even the president, who is kind of the straight man. That, that to me is the funniest scenes in the film is him on the phone. Yes, I'm with, fine. Yes, yes, I was like, he, oh, he, uh, he, you know, he did something Dimitri. funny. He, uh, he made a little oh, mess yeah. of it. Uh, yeah, D Dimitri. Genius. Well, no, of course Genius. I like talking with you, Dimitri. Like that's <laughs> all can you, brilliant. Can you, can you turn down the music? To please turn on the yeah, music. The <laughs> Major, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. But then he was supposed to originally also play Major Kong, the Slim Pickens role, and then he broke his leg, and so they were like, "Okay, well, th that's all being filmed at the done at the end of filming. So don't worry, Peter, we'll so find just, someone and else." And just to clarify, folks, Slim Pickens plays the captain, the pilot, the main pilot of that B-52 bomber setting. So that would have been right. the the right. third and final place that we would have seen this man, a uh, fourth and final place, because. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll get and, to it uh, And Dr. Where, Strangelove, where of course. Peter Sellers, and Dr. Dr. Strangelove, who also exists in the war room. Yeah, continue, yeah but they, yeah, Slim Pickens, apparently they only showed him his pages. And so he yes. played it straight. And so to me, where the comedy of all that is just having him with his yeehaw accent, which is how this gentleman talks. And he's dressed how this gentleman dresses. And that, that's the joke. That that's the joke is that, like, he's such a, like, root and tootin, like, Texan. Uh, that is going to lead us to our doom. Like I wasn't, I, I 
still can't really get on board. Love seeing Babyface, James Earl Jones hiding out in that plane with them. But mm-hmm. uh, that to me is so strange. But that this film has that, Slim Pickens and Sterling Hayden, Peter Sellers in this trio of roles, and George C. Scott like a maniac in this film, yeah. which I love. But it's bananas to me of how that it feels like they are all in such different films. The fact that Peter Sellers is in the same film as Sterling Hayden and Slim Pickens, like these are wildly wildly different performances and i think it i think it works but i'm still not 100 percent sure um but i did definitely enjoy it more actually watching the entire thing through of course the only way to see a movie i don't think it's fair to judge a film if you've not seen it from start to finish yeah. uh but i i and i did i did love knowing because i hadn't i never reached the stuff with Dr. Strangelove the first times that I watched it. Because you don't really see get to him. Un- he doesn't speak until like almost halfway through the film. But you do see him in the background uh, in the scenes with George C. Scott and Peter yeah. Sellers as the president talking. And you just see like in the, if you know to look for him, you're in the background. You're like, there's also Peter Sellers, which is so funny. I, I so leaned funny forward. I was like, is that David Lynch in the back of that <laughs> shot? <I was> like, <laughs> oh, man. That would have been awesome. Yeah, yeah right? I, I agree with you, dude. I think the, uh, and Dave, I'm sure... I'm sure we're all going to end up talking about this a little bit. Like it's I, sometimes I hate when things get labeled. Cause I'm trying to imagine, I didn't try to find a trailer for this or anything, you know, 1964, maybe you had heard that this person made Lolita. Maybe, you know, who Peter Sellers is. So you're assuming it's going to be kind of funny, but even then, if you're a fan of Peter Sellers comedy, they're always offbeat, right? They're always a little, mm. Oh yeah. Always a little absurd. Uh, and I feel he's, like this he's is, terrifying in Lolita. Like he is technically the comic relief, but he's also a predator and, as is Humbert Humbert, of course, uh, and is legit a terrifying presence in that film. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And probably so was a little like, in uh, real life as well, from what I know, Peter Sellers. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's, he's got to be. Dave, what do, just, you, what do you think, dude? I'm just very interested in the fact that, like, why, I, Kubrick is famous for doing multiple takes, take after take after take after take, till he gets what he wants. Sellers is famous for never doing the same thing twice. Why would you put those two together? <laughs> like that I, I, seems I, like that seems like either an absolute nightmare or pure fucking genius. And in my opinion, I think we got the second one out of this. Yeah, I do agree with that. I agree. I think like, that's like kind of what a perfectionist sometimes needs when it yeah. comes to Kubrick. That that is like what shakes it up. Because hmm. uh, I think that all work. I think all Peter Sellers stuff works. Yeah, I think like, it is a reason that he was nominated for an Oscar for it. I think yeah, it's a I think, brilliant I think trio of performances. Sometimes Kubrick doesn't know what he wants till he sees it. I think. Um, and, yeah, for sure, yeah. Yeah, and, and I guess that's true of a lot of directors. Like, they'll, they'll run it, and then they'll run it again, and let's try this, and then you see what works on, on the time. And if, if there's, like, three takes max for sellers, and he's off doing something else. And so you, you get, I guess, a, a lot of variety, and it really shone in this. Like, he pulls it right back in the, like, the British um, army, character mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah and the like he pulls Mandrake. it right back he plays yeah he plays it very effeminate and then the president is yeah you're right he's 100 straight man uh but he's saying some of the most ridiculous things with 100 conviction <laughs> and that is when comedy works the best yeah it's like i'm not going for a laugh this is just ridiculous and the way that they i think you're you're totally right and the way that they that and he films and this strange uh, love is just classic sellers but yeah uh yeah yeah of course and the way they film this it's such uh the takes are long you know so mm. 
So even that kind of spits in the face of what comedy usually is. Uh, you know, things have changed throughout the ages. I think they probably did take a little bit more time. The cutting wasn't rapid fire like we ex- kind of expect of our comedies nowadays. Even someone like, uh, you know, Adam McKay and Judd Apatow nowadays, they love letting people go and go and go and go and go. But then you can tell when they get in the cutting room, they're like, desperately trying to match things up so that they can keep a quicker pace. Kubrick often was just pointing a camera at Peter Sellers and letting him go. Right. And yeah. like, you kind of wait until he finds a funny moment. He lingers a little bit directing wise, and then he might cut away from him if they if they have to see somebody else talk, uh, mm. which I think I, I'm curious. I know what you guys are saying. I've always been curious why they, why he was so attracted to Peter Sellers. Cause maybe you could say he took a chance on him for Lolita, but clearly he did this on purpose for this movie casting yeah. him again and trying and to get him for multiple in, roles yeah in multiple I th- roles i thought i remembered reading that the studio wanted sellers because that's they kind of they thought or, or maybe they they at least wanted sellers playing multiple roles they wanted to be playing as many roles as possible because they thought that was one of the reasons why lolita was a success was peter sellers was playing multiple parts and i can't remember now if he's actually playing multiple parts or if his one guy is just in disguise and playing and as other characters i i as the can't character, remember yeah i know it's I can't been a while either. but um I remember that they thought that. So I don't know if maybe Kubrick, how much Kubrick wanted him in it, or if it was the studio, or if Kubrick wanted him for maybe less than three or four roles. That I don't know. But yeah, I, I, it does. It is one of those things that should not work on paper, but I think is such a big selling point in the film. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what uh, did you guys think? Um, can you imagine just putting on the, the you know your time capsule hat and and seeing a movie like this, like I, I was listening to you talk about the the Slim Pickens thing and let's just pretend that we don't know anything about like the casting situation and what, what, what happened with them. Let's just, let's assume that they did this on purpose and that Kubrick got exactly what he wanted out of it. Um, it almost kind of makes sense that up until that point, after World War II, there hadn't been too many absurd world, like war comedies and the whole like America, yeah, like I think we're so we're so overridden <laughs> with that that trope by now, and the stereotype is so dead. I wonder if it played differently back then, like when he gets out when he switches his helmet for the you know the straw cowboy hat, and just you know just immediately setting it up from the beginning, like everything is very blatant. Do you think it would have washed differently back then? Do you think it would have been a little bit more? comedic than maybe it is to somebody right now who's kind of watching this kind of I, waiting for the comedy i don't think so because i think uh you're talking 64 so there was a lot of like the anti-war anti like movement was starting around like the conflict that america was involved in so i feel like a lot of people would have been 100 percent on board with that characterization at that point yeah no i, th- I mean i think so too hmm. for sure i think it probably would have been welcomed just for the sake of the right. the stereotype in the storytelling, I wonder if people were like, "Fuck yeah, that's like what all Americans are like," or if they were able to. He's like it, me. I don't know I've if it was a stereotype because no one had done it yet. <laughs> it's a stereotype yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, that's but he said he yeah. started that stereotype. I think like it was it was almost yeah. When when your film like is film. fully yeah. satire, you know, because this film I mean, nominated for Peter Sellers at the Oscars, mm. nominated for writing, directing and best picture There's a best picture nominee. So this film is, and I think it did well, if I remember that it did like it, people saw this to some extent, um, but it's still this isn't like the comedy of the year. You know, this is still like your Stanley Kubrick 
intellectual satire that is going to play really well for some people and really well for not. Like, I feel like it is like, it reminds me a lot of like, um, what's his name? Armando Iannucci of like death of Stalin and in the loop, like that kind of like insight, like dagger of political satire hmm. that you're like, yeah, you can laugh at this, but really you should be terrified that this is the world we live in where all of this could actually happen. Um, so I don't, I'm curious yeah. if like, if, you know, the flyover states in the U S are like, let's go, let's go cart up the kids and go see the new Stanley Kubrick comedy. And, yeah. uh, and you know, that, you know, <laughs> I hate it at all, but that major Kong, that is the man for me. Uh, I don't know. I don't know of how this played for people back then. Of, I, I feel like, hmm. you know, we were so scared, had like that, the cold war, the fear at any moment could be doomsday. So on the one yeah. hand, it is like the relief to be able to laugh. Like does someone give you permission Really, like with Mel Brooks starting to be like, let's just make fun of Hitler. Let's make fun of Hitler and the Nazis as much as we can, because it's the only way to take power away from people is to laugh at them. And this just takes power away from it's also the U.S. government. You know, it's not we're not just making fun of the, the Ruskies. Mm. It's also it is all of our own government and all of the the way I, lo I love that opening with the U.S. Air Force, like the the just text of being like the U.S. Air Force wants to make sure, you know, that none of this could actually happen. Uh, yeah, despite the fact it's probably happened at least three times, like almost. <laughs> they said yeah. that after this film, this film was a reason that they had to make they more failures yeah. and change a lot of yeah. things. So really, if nothing else, this film probably helped save us from nuclear Armageddon in real life. <laughs> yes. I mean, honestly, and he kind of did that. He's a bit of a. Uh, fortune teller in that sense isn't he like with 2001 i mean I, th I think there were a lot of things that he kind of you know predicted mm. isn't really the right word but just based on research and where things were happening he's such a he's such a stickler for for details apparently he read i'm sure he researched an enormous amounts i saw an imdb trivia yep. that he read like over you know those, 50 books those so telephones like, on the moon we have them now Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. No, <laughs> no. Superman Four would uh, would be able to fix that. Yes. Uh, How else are you going to call Superman? You got to put a phone on the moon. Jesus Christ! <laughs> Let's not go back there. <laughs> I do what I I do love that like in these like it's it, it is political satire and it's it's making fun of like the U.S. government, the U.S. war movement, all that sort of stuff. But it's also straight up a comedy like it's it's poking fun but there's also some like i laughed out loud i can't tell you how many times during this like with some of the ridiculous shit particularly in the war room that yeah. they were coming out with it's like what was my, my favorite line in the whole film it's like you can't fight in here this is the war room right right mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> of course yeah it's so classic I yeah found, i, th I, I mean, found like all the war room stuff so good that to me is because it is so such a tripod of a film that it's balanced between the scenes on the plane the stuff with uh, Peter Sellers as Mandrake, the RAF agent with Sterling Hayden, and then the war room. And I think the war room stuff to me imbalances it almost too much because that to me is so is so it's so successful in all the war room and, and, and george c scott we've not even talked about george c scott he is giving mm -hmm. a bananas performance in this yes. and i think it's so good he's so wildly like it it touches the ceiling of over the top like just barely barely stops from going completely over the line um but i love it i never expected even with Patton. I never expected to see like this level of George C. Scott going like frothing at the mouth, fly air airplaning around. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, there are certain like, you know, rules of performing satire. And I think you get to see like two, like really, really, you know, achieved actors 
showing you different versions of, of how to approach that kind of work. And Scott, it sounds like, was resisting going that direction. But I think if he had also tried to go low, opposite um, Peter Sellers' Strangelove and uh, the, the president, and try to make it more nuanced and strange and just kind of quieter. Like neither one of them ever really goes bananas or raises their voice and is driven Mm. insane by their obstacles. I think it would, I don't know if that's, I don't know if it would have worked if it would have just been these two guys like playing it slow and serious, especially because Sterling Hayden was doing something so grounded on in the air force, uh, in the air force base. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I I also, I want to mention that I feel like, we we, ha- we do keep saying I've seen this movie a few times now, and yes, it is a comedy, but I feel like satire really lands for me when at the end of it, it's a tragedy. Um, I feel like that's oh, there's also there's also a really good counterpoint going through it. What you've got this looming bomber heading towards its destination, and they keep cutting back to it, and it's progressing towards its destination. It's like, are they gonna are they gonna go there, or are they not? Are they, is this thing gonna drop? And it's just this really good tension device that builds opposite the comedy for what's going yeah. on. Because you've got this really serious event here and counterpointing that, you've got these complete fucking idiots taking phone calls from their mistresses and like <laughs> arguing over, you know, who can see the big board when we let them in the in the fucking office and ridiculous things that have no bearing whatsoever in this situation. And it, you just want to grab them and shake them and it's like, fucking pay attention. There's something serious going on over here, but you're not taking it seriously. Yeah. And the fact that... And I feel like that, like to evoke that is really, really, really good. I mean, it's always useful when you have like something that is creating a time limit, right? Like yeah. overall, like yeah. you have yeah, something pushing clock. against yeah. it, uh, which is, you know, commentary. Eventually they created the doomsday clock, right? Over... I'm not sure when that was actually invented, but just the idea that we're always ticking down to some kind of uh, world's end. Yes. Great. Yeah, great. <laughs> always good to be reminded of great. that. If you don't know what the uh, doomsday clock is, do not look it up for a couple of years. Just saying. Yeah. We, got a ways, we got a ways back from where we got over the last But couple. I do think the genius of this movie lives in the... In, in, in its tragic ending. Like, if you finally get to... If you can get to that place where... And the balls he has to to put we'll meet again over a montage of you know nuclear war explosions or hydrogen bomb yeah. you know that that's ominous as yeah fuck. i mean that's such a good well, song it's choice. such a good song so choice. Good. anyone yeah i mean uh, what well, it was like the anthem of world war ii uh yeah i remember the first time i saw this movie when it got there like that was one of those moments where like just my jaw was just on the floor so so i guess what the, the it's it's kind of a Kubrick thing. We, we, I feel like we fell into this trap a little bit when we were talking about Reservoir Dogs a few weeks ago. Like it's kind of hard to only talk about the movies of these really, you know, powerful auteurs that have such a an impact and such a voice in everything they do. Even though, unlike Quentin, well, sort of similar to Quentin Tarantino, they they tackle genres. So this was Kubrick's comedy. And then he does a sci-fi film and then he does a war film and then he does a horror mm-hmm. movie. And then he does. So it's almost w- w- what seems to be the most interesting to me is that you're aware you're watching this Kubrick film and every single scene breaks rules of what you think that genre is capable of doing. So I feel like every time, it, which is maybe one reason why as a high schooler trying to approach uh, Dr. Strangelove as a comedy or any of his films, really. But if you're thinking of it, there's this there's this level of expectation that I think we all have whenever we hear something about art. I'm kind of to this point now where like, I don't really like watching trailers as much anymore. I don't even know if I want to hear critical reviews of stuff. 
if it's a creator I respect, I probably just want to see what they did because I like their brain. Um, yeah, but this is, the, the, this is probably the third time I've seen this and maybe even more than the first time because the first time I was mm. just such, I was just, it was, it really affected me. Every single scene, I just did, felt did like- Did you hear that marketing department? Marketing department, we don't need you. I mean, look, I know you got to get driving up the budget to get, film. Well, we need you, but be a little more abstract. Get, yeah. Don't you don't need to tell us. We don't need to see the whole movie in a trailer. We just don't. Yeah. I did. I almost mentioned earlier when you were talking about the trailer. I have actually seen the trailer for this because it randomly they must have done a reissue or something. But the trailer for this would play before the DVD of The Professional, Liam the oh, Professional. Wow. So, which I had a DVD, so I would always see this whenever like hmm. starting on the DVD. I would see this, and I just the main thing I remembered is you ha- you cut to George C. Scott on the bed with the, his secretary being like, blast off! And then they cut to explosions. And then mm. for the title, they do the title. They have three different people read the title. So they have some, like, spooky guy going, Dr. Strangelove. Then, like, a stentorian newscaster going, or how I learned to stop worrying. And then a sexy woman going, and love the bomb. And, which I always loved and i've never forgotten that you have such you're like your title is being broken up into Mm. three different areas like your film i guess your film is broken up into these Mm -hmm. three very different different uh uh situations i mean it's possible he wouldn't let it get on dvd and for that for that long he was like fuck you you're going to the theater to watch this yeah i mean yeah quite possibly (laughs) yeah when would that have been leon the professional comedy right Mm. say that again Oh, that was like, yeah, 94. But whenever the, that was 94, I think. But whenever the DVD of it came out, I don't know of yeah. when actually, uh, probably late 90s or early aughts. Yeah, I'm sure they um, It might have been. It probably was after Stanley Kubrick had already died. I'm sure there are already a bunch. Uh, uh, there are also a bunch of people just in our generation who just from a distance looked at this and said, nope, fuck it. It's in black and white. I'm not even going to give it a chance. And I hope that, you know, yeah. on this podcast alone, I'm sure you guys too, I hope we have just tried to, you know, break that down a little bit there are there are things that are good that are in yeah. black and white yeah. you don't have to be a snob absolutely cinephile. we've seen I a mean, lot of them yeah this is uh <laughs> this is just one of them too and i also feel like it, it adds a. I, I can't remember who i heard saying this one point it was one of the old golden age directors it may have been billy wilder and he was they were just talking about what what black and white actually does in terms of cinematography to storytelling with mood and symbolism you don't realize it you just think it's an old movie but why you would choose hmm. to do it this way everything is told in black and white, the world exists in black and white. There's, it's hard to pick up these grays and stuff. Everything seems binary, and I think that just played into. They could have shot this in color. It's, I mean, the, yeah. The thing, the thing is, they're still doing it. Like you got the Logan black and white cut. You got the Justice League Zack Snyder black and white cut. Although that was called Justice is Gray, so it was. But yeah, um, like they're still doing this, so it's still a valid like medium to watch a film in. So give these black and white things a shot. Especially when part of this film, as you uh, said, with Sterling Hayden in the Air Force Base, is shot like a very sincere noir. Oh, hell and yeah. With cinematography, like what you can do with shadows in black and white is is kind of unmatched, in my opinion. I think there's just it's just way more dramatic the look and dynamic of in black and white. His cigar smoke in oh black God, and white <laughs> is so much better, is what gives you that old timey like noir effect. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, it, it plays so much better in black and white than I could imagine this in color. I do love that Kubrick apparently demand really he wanted the war room table to be green. So it would feel like they were arguing all this over like a poker table, uh, yeah. which I don't think you would would work in color. I don't think actually seeing a big, bright felt green table would yeah. actually read well. But having the actors have that 
when playing it. Uh, I think, I mean, that whole war room set, I love the war room set with that massive table, that giant, yeah. like UFO light ring above it and all of the yeah. posters. The, the, yeah. The big board on one end. And then when you pan to the other end, it's just some random spotlights in the background with some smoke. Like there is yeah. no wall there. Yeah, yeah exactly. All the negative <laughs> space yeah. is so, it, it does something strange. It doesn't, one thing I thought, I always thought when I first saw this movie was like, where, where are they? Is this supposed to be in the White House? Like the way the normal situation room is like, it, there was so much it's, negative it's in space the that it kind of creates mm. this, it's it's supposed to be set in the Pentagon, but it kind of yeah. creates this, this illusion that like, they could technically be anywhere. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. You know, it's the president of the United States, you know, he's talking to his head generals, but this doesn't feel like anything that we had seen before in terms of like what might look mm. like inside the Pentagon or inside I, the White I love House. That the, I love that the war room catering was just all fucking cakes too. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, well, that's yeah. the like the famous... Let's get, hopped, let's get hopped up on sugar and decide the fate of humanity, yeah. <laughs> I, that is so great. I just love the long, long, long line, like this, all these tables set up of all these like desserts, but apparently that was like the cut ending from this. I don't know if, if you guys already both know this, but it was originally supposed to not. end in a big pie fight. Oh God! So oh they're my all God! Covered Please in pies. Tell me they shot that. I want to find that. There's like there's like a production still. You can see a production still. It, it just it was apparently just a, it failed so spectacularly of them trying to film it because it read funny. It was like really like this only works if it they are slapstick. if it's dead serious. Yeah. And instead, it just read like these guys are having a fun pie fight, and like this is not the way to end this film. But original, but like in concept, I get that of like, I, and all these yeah. politicians are devolving into a food fight because I do, I do children. like the ending he went with instead, but I'd re- still like to see that. Oh yeah. They could have worked that in a little earlier. I think George C. Scott, if he had, when he's like rest, the whole, you know, this you can't yeah. fight in the war room. He yeah. could have gotten like one pie in on the, uh, the Russian ambassador. <laughs> I, they could have had a <laughs> slight little pie fight then. Yeah. 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 It's been the week for missed opportunities <laughs> in films. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know, man. This film, uh, have you guys seen? So, have you? You said you both had not seen Lolita until like you were older. Yeah, a couple like five years ago, six years ago, I saw Lolita for the first time. I still haven't seen it because I didn't want to end up on a watch list. (laughs) No, no, it's totally (laughs) worth watching. I feel like these two films kind of go together uh, in his canon when you start kind of trying to see like where he was in his in his career and the kind of things that he was playing with. I don't know. I still just can't. I, I kind of can't believe that he that he did this for <laughs> for like his second for his second one. I guess it's not so surprising after after doing Lolita first, but I don't know. I uh, I know Stanley Kubrick kind of stands alone, but and I know that this kind of movie is challenging, but I just it, it's kind of hard to imagine anybody trying to approach the kind of material he chooses nowadays without a whole bunch of like guns and explosions or really fast cutting. Like, I feel like everybody, I was listening to somebody the other day, I think it was Scott Cooper that got directed, you know, crazy hard and hostiles mm-hmm. and out of the furnace. Mm-hmm. And I think he was talking about how, how basically he's just living a life of constant disagreements with producers on how he's, he's he has to defend every single lull in his movies. Like if there is one tiny little moment where people have a chance to think they say we got to speed it up. The pace is nobody's going to want to see this. Nobody's going to want to take a chance. And I don't know. Every time I watch a Kubrick movie, I'm just reminded that that's not true in principle. There are ways. There are ways to break down form and to present things differently. And yeah, they might be challenging, but they're when when you do them right, they turn into that dirty word, which is art. Which I I don't know. 
I think mm. I think he does seem to consistently mm. live in this space. Yeah, really, dirty like words. Subversive a, art. <laughs> subversive art. Yeah. And I, so, I mean, a I lot know. of that is what he's good at. Like he he subverts expectations a lot. Um, he turned, you know, a science fiction film into a thirty-minute acid trip. Yeah, mm-hmm. he did. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, and I mean that turned that a is, horror film into something slow. He completely played against form in The Shining too, right? I love yep. listening to people talk about like, oh, I, I saw that for the first time the other day, and it's like it's not, it's terrible. It's not a horror movie. It's like, well, it's a, it's a Kubrick movie. It's, it's, it's something else. Hmm. I mean, did that, you feel that overwhelming sensation with this? Did you feel like no one else could have made this? Like that, that very classic, like, oh, I, don't, I don't know. I feel like this is one of the films that has the least of his stamps on it, except for you know the occasional, like the, the way it's cut and the way that the timelines move consecutively and there's like the looming threat and all that sort of stuff. Like there's a lot of stuff in there that you recognize as his style, but I feel like this is the one that's almost like the least of his stamp on it. Yeah. I'd agree with that. I mean, because it's clear it's easily his his funniest film. It's like Mm, the most out and out comedic. Uh, And with Peter Sellers, because in Lolita, he's also a supporting character. He kind of bips in and out occasionally, but here he's, Almost, if, except for the stuff with Major Kong on the plane, like he is almost always in the scene. Uh, really, once we once we get into the film, like proper, um, and it is that he's such a such a strong flavor, Peter Sellers, at, at complete odds with what we think of with Stanley Kubrick and that perfectionism. Uh, that I, I this does feel so different, but I I think still is so is still so good. It's still so good and so necessary to check out and to include within like the roster of Kubrick's like great films. I think because it's so different from his tip, the typical, what we think of as a Kubrick film. Yeah. I will bring it back to something I said a couple of weeks ago um, when I was talking about a film and it's, this is one of those examples of cinema where you see everyone on their fucking A game. Yeah. Like Mm. he's on his A game. Sellers is on his A game. Like everyone in the film brings their A game to this and it's, it sells because of that. And it's so this yeah. is this is basically a collaboration of master collaborators. Yeah, forming a, a masterpiece, just another another masterpiece. Yeah, um, yeah, man, I agree. Dave, did you feel like the? I I kind of can't help but think about like composition and cinematography, just because everything we just said is just big picture storytelling stuff, and like obviously he thinks about all those things too. And the acting is incredible. The more obvious things are incredible, but uh, in terms of cinematography. I kept noticing this time, I don't think I thought about it the first time, uh, that he went handheld every time he was around what I would call regular people, the low-level soldiers, uh, the away from a lot of the stuff in the plane, but definitely away from Slim Pickens, whenever it was following the other guys or cutting to the other guys, just a little bit of life in the camera, a lot of life in the camera, um, out in the little battle that happens outside of the Air Force Base. And then every time he would cut into one of these 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 main roles we're talking about, these powerful decision makers, it was fucking on tripods and it was still. And with Sterling Hayden, mm-hmm. he was raised way up. And Peter Sellers was just like sitting in this, you know, he was often just sitting like think- in these tight close-ups that are just sterile almost. Like it was it was very interesting with the con the the contradiction that he was using with that. And I didn't really think about that until I, this I time. Mean, I mean one one of my favorite shots in the film. One of my favorite shots in the film is the uh, phone booth. Oh my when God. he's trying to yes. he's trying yeah. to he's trying to call the president he doesn't have enough money <laughs> and it, it, it's almost like they just they just set the camera up and went all right everybody that's lunch we'll come back and see what he does after this yeah, yeah. seriously 
like it, it but it's a beautiful shot and it it works because you're a hundred percent on him and it's it's like what's he gonna come out with what's this situation oh my god he hasn't got enough money he's trying to get money off this guy this is ridiculous and because it just forces you to watch that and nothing else it's painful but hilarious it also makes you start counting down those minutes right because I think I think <laughs> yes. I think you know that there's like minutes left at that point. Uh-huh. That moment, <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. One of the moments that I laughed really hard out loud this time was just a tiny little moment where Peter Sellers first steps into the phone booth and he just he goes to close the door like you normally would, and the guy just <laughs> the soldier just like doesn't let him. Close. I don't know that just fucking killed me. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It's right. C- Colonel Bat Guano. <laughs> God, so good. You guys. That was the only thing that took me out of it was that name. That guy, yeah, that guy. The, a lot yeah. of the names. I don't yeah. know. A lot of the names. Turgidson. Turgidson is on the line. The rest of them, I was yeah, but they didn't cross it. But Baguano, okay, yeah, you've you've crossed the line. You've made me Merkin aware Muffler. that I'm watching Merkin someone Muffler try to be was funny. good for yeah. you. President Merkin. Yes, yeah, that was that great. Was Lionel Mandrake, Colonel Lionel Mandrake. <laughs> I love that one. Uh, well, kind of hard to talk about these movies at this level of course i think we i think we gave it, it our is. best i think it's uh especially in the time we have <laughs> yeah and i mean yeah just in general i feel like it's uh when stuff does slip into like really high art like this like i, I think it is something that you have to experience so if we stumbled through this and if you got anything out of it i hope it will just encourage people out there to to give it a chance if you're like these two guys and maybe had mil- yeah, you know, you many legit reasons why you haven't seen it. Just to put it back on you guys, are you, are you happy you watched it? Should you have seen it mm-hmm. by now? Or do you think it's good you waited this long? Uh, yeah, I d- definitely happy that I watched it. And uh, yeah, it's as of this recording, it's uh, streaming on HBO Max if you want to check it out. So it's, yeah. if you've got HBO Max, very easy to, to check. It's so short. It's barely 90 minutes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think it's definitely, you know, because some of the Kubrick films that I still have blind spots on are, you know, they're like three hours. Like Barry Lyndon is like a three hour long film. And that feels like a real commitment. This is not a long commitment. Exactly. You're in, you're out. And it's it is honestly I mean, it is it might be it's maybe a toss up between this and being there of Peter Sellers best work. I do think it's so that's alone is strong enough reason to check out. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's great performances. It's it's Kubrick. He's like about he's in like the realm right now in this period of becoming like the master Stanley Kubrick. Um, but I definitely recommend I'm really glad that I actually watched it all the way through. I did enjoy it more than I thought that I might. Nice. I was pleasantly surprised. I was very pleasantly surprised. Good. Um, this is it's it's tight, but it's also well paced. And like I said, everyone brings their A game to it. Well, it's worth yeah. a watch. Well, that was oh, our yeah. uh, should have seen it by now. Doctor Strangelove, nineteen sixty four. Again, if anybody wants to, you feel free to reach us on the socials and submit something that you have have never seen, and maybe we'll get around to talking about it uh, before we yeah. wrap up. Uh, we usually at the very end try to talk about if there's anything, any recommendations anybody has seen uh, yeah. recently Global that you mentions. might want to throw out there. Uh, Jeff, you have have you had anything? You guys been watching over there yeah. at your place? Um, mainly, mainly hacks. Just finished hacks. Oh, cool. So good. Love that Gene Smart. Give Gene Smart some love. Go support hacks. Nice. Uh, I did. See, this wasn't recently, but I was reminded watching this that uh, I think is a pretty decent film. Is worth checking out. Uh, it's very similar to this in some ways. Is that film Eye in the Sky, which came out some like seven or eight years ago with Helen Mirren. With the drone program. Uh, it's I. 
Yeah, I think it's Alan Rickman's last film role as well, and Aaron Paul. And it's just, it's go, kind of going through the same thing of this, the chain of command to like launch a drone strike and how it's like all of these people are like, no one wants to be the one to give the go ahead to this. Um, so it's not quite, I think, I think there was like some trailer blurb that was like, it's this meets Dr. Strangelove, which is inaccurate because it's nowhere near a comedy the way this is, but it deals with some of the similar bureaucratic, like red tape. Uh, and it's Alan Rickman's, I believe his last role, which is reason wow. enough to check yeah, out on this guy as well. Definitely. Hmm. Yeah. Dave, how about you, dude? You watch anything? I haven't really. Uh, I, no, I've I've been back at work a little bit, uh, so I haven't really checked anything out since uh, Sunday because I usually get all my watching in at the end of the week. Um, but I am gonna be watching Loki straight after this. If anyone nice. uh, has seen episode four and didn't watch it right to the end, go back and watch it right to the end. There's an after credit scene for the first time in episode four. Oh, Just saying. Jesus yeah. Christ! Of course, I took your uh, <laughs> I took your recommendation from the last episode and I checked out that. Uh, Amazon Prime film The Tomorrow War. Yeah. Um that was yeah, that was a pretty interesting seeing a movie with that uh that had that bud that budget was two hundred million dollars. That was a quite a large purchase. It was supposed to come out last Christmas. Not this past Christmas, mm. the one before that, and then you know, pandemic and everything. They dumped that to streaming. Well, you know, I read I'm a really whole surprised. big article about that and it was a big decision to try to go for that, but you know, as everyone says, it gets all you know way more mm. viewers because of it. But it was the first time out of all these, you know, there have been some good movies that have come out of streaming, but it was the first time I saw a movie of this size. There are a lot of like very, not just like visual effect. Like, obviously, there's shit tons of CGI with yeah. aliens and stuff, but like the mm. actual well, just some shots of some of, of the like aliens is some of the aliens and, are practical. I found out some of those aliens are actually operated practicals, which is which is pretty cool. Um, so yeah, That's that was cool. a quite an experience. If you have a nice sound system, please don't watch that on your computer. Please, please try to. Oh yeah. hell yeah! <laughs> try to like. What about on your phone? Can you watch it on your phone? Oh man, <laughs> Jesus! I'm hearing your phone might explode. Yeah. Like the speakers will be hanging out of the bottom of it. So yeah, I mean that that was fun though. That was cool. Definitely, if you're in the mm. mood for a blockbuster. But uh, yeah. So uh, next week, Dave, we're going to be talking we're about going two new to the films. movies. Yeah, we're going to try to get back to we're the cinema. To the what are we going to be watching? It's a big week. We're a little bit late to the game, but uh, you know we had Fourth of July and that sort of thing come in, so we're uh, we're going to be talking about F nine. It's all about yeah. family. It's nice. Nice. Yeah. nice. So, and I did I did see on Twitter this week someone come out with an absolute perler, and it's like if the next movie isn't Fast Ten, your seatbelts, <laughs> they're walking the hell out. I'm like, oh, that's so yes, good. that's amazing. Oh. Not my gag. Someone else on Twitter came <laughs> right out with that, but it's amazing. It stuck with me. Good, yeah. Dude. Yeah, uh, and of course we're <laughs> going to jump straight on to uh, the very, very soon to be released Black Widow because Marvel's back, baby. Like it went anywhere? Like <laughs> it's still <laughs> yeah. Marvel's still still here, baby. Uh, yeah, yeah. So. As, as we're now in Loki, the third of three MCU TV shows, they are here one after stand. the other, and we're excited. We're excited, Jeff. Just one more time. Where can everybody find you guys on the show? Yeah, Any you find. We are at and almost starring on Instagram and Facebook. You find us uh, wherever you listen to your podcast. We just had a uh, Jonathan Braylock of the fantastic podcast, Black Men Can't Jump in Hollywood and uh, Netflix's Astronomy Club on to talk about Men in Black. Uh, great episode. Nice. So uh, yeah, come check us out. Sweet, man. Well, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, man. So good have to be on again. Thank you, dude. Absolutely. All right, film fans. We'll, we'll see you next time. Woo.